0: October surprises, third-party candidates, and other overachieving eccentrics in this episode of The Barstool Historian. New York, New York, and Geneva, Illinois, the Sodom and Gomorrah of modern times. It's the Barstool Historian podcast broadcasting from the Lion's Arms Tavern, our digital tap room where the past is our playground. Uh, Welcome back, everybody. This is John here in New York, uh, along with Tim, also in New York. Hello, Tim. Howdy. And on the other side of the bar in the Geneva, Illinois side is Ed. Hello, Ed. Bonjour. Well, uh, fellas, what can you say about the past few weeks? This has been uh, an October to remember. We've got one of the craziest, well, the craziest presidential election in my lifetime, and uh, then wonder of all wonders last night after... 108 years, the Cubs finally won the World Series. They
1: Woo-hoo! did indeed. So, and feel
2: free to queue up the Steve Goodman uh, Go Cubs Go. <laughs>
0: uh, as long as, not, it's, as it's not that horrible Eddie Vedder song. Uh, which yeah, If I no, never hear that again, I'll be, a, I'll be a happy man. I, um, I refuse to listen to it. <laughs> but history is happening right now, and it's really exciting. If you think about the fact that in 1908, the last time the Cubs won the World Series... There was a sultan in Constantinople, a czar in Russia, and an emperor in Austria-Hungary.
2: And a chicken in every pot.
0: What's that? And (laughs) And a (laughs) a chicken in every pot. That's the last time the Cubs won the World Series. And in a few days' time, uh, who knows what's going to happen. We may elect uh, our country's first female president— uh, and you know, there may be riding in the streets. Who knows? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what well, I'm saying well, is that we may be living in the end times, fellas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and sometimes it certainly feels that's, that, that, that that's way. That's true enough. Well,
1: I, I think you can say on the other side, we historically speaking, we may elect someone for the first time uh, who has absolutely no policy experience <clears throat> whatsoever, or or any history in, in politics.
2: Yeah. Oh, come on, get come on, guys. Gary Johnson can pull this thing out. <laughs> he
0: could, he could still surprise you, I guess. Yes. Gary Johnson, or, or, or well, Jill, that, Jill Stein
2: and her "Vaccines for None" platform. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, uh, so I think it's it makes a lot of sense for us to talk a little bit a little bit about presidential politics in the past, and um, and then because we're going to need a cl- palate cleanser, uh, let's explore one of the great eccentrics uh, of history, Lord Timothy Dexter. Uh, And, you know, God knows this election has had its own share of of eccentrics. Uh, (laughs) He'd
2: do well in this election, I'm going to tell you that. Oh,
0: I think think he, you know what, he probably would have gotten pretty far. Yes. (laughs) But, uh, you know, before we get going, we all have beverages in front of us right now.
1: What are you guys drinking? Tim, what are you drinking? Well, this is a rare occasion where I'm drinking beer. And this is Shipyard Pumpkinhead Ale. Ah. Um, From Maine. uh, From Maine, yes. Uh, It's quite good. It has uh, an actual pumpkin flavor as opposed to the manufactured one. Like, you know, when you chew strawberry bubble gum and it doesn't taste like strawberries... Uh, this actually tastes like pumpkin, and uh, it's very clean, crisp, and it's uh, autumnal. So there you have it.
2: Ed, what about you? I actually have uh, Urban Legend Brewing Company's "You Big Dummy" Imperial Red Ale. Oh my goodness! And uh, yes, that's that's for uh, Lord Timothy Dexter today. <laughs> it's well, pretty good, and it's it's oh god eight. 8.8% and, uh, yeah, I only got one bottle. That, that, uh, that's pre- it's pretty smooth. Well, I am not drinking from a bottle because I'm high
0: class. I am drinking straight from the tap, the keg, here in, in uh, my, uh, my Brooklyn office. And um, I'm drinking a Bronx Pale Ale. And how do I describe this? It's solid. It's a decent ale Hmm. i think uh seventeen eighteen years ago, I would have thought this is a fantastic craft brew, but it's a little generic, but you know, it's free <laughs> It's but it's, it's, it surprising. Of bronx.
1: <laughs> it's surprising how decent it is though
0: well I way. know you, usually you, you, you wouldn't expect uh any liquid that flows from the bronx to <laughs> to taste uh to taste good at all um Tim you, you know you have experience of the Bronx and you would know better than anybody else, I guess.
2: Yeah, you, you don't want anything like yeah, that. Straight from the Bronx. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> engender a lot of confidence. Straight
0: well, from
1: the sewer. Well, when I
0: think of the Bronx and I think of fluids, <laughs> I think of one thing, and that's Purell. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> well, I'm glad that's what you're the, thinking. In, your days in the courthouse, Tim, that's what I remember. Everybody in that courthouse, every two minutes squirting their hands with Purell.
1: Yeah, Well, when you said, when I think of the Bronx, I, I think of fluids, um, <laughs> that, 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 that I reminisce about different kinds of fluids that often flowed from the person of the defendant <laughs> while you were arraigning them.
2: Oh, God. On the streets of the Bronx Is where I want to be Standing on the corner, singing good old harmony. I'll
1: be waiting for the man to come and discover me.
0: I I don't know if you guys have uh, watched the um, recent Triumph the Insult comic dog. Election specials? Have you guys <laughs> no. seen these? Oh God, no! Now they're, I need to find. They're them they're out about they're them. on Hulu. They're pretty hit or miss, uh, but they did have a really good bit in the last one where uh, Triumph took Libertarian presidential candidate Gary Johnson as his date to the Emmys, <laughs> and <clears throat> he's he's walking down to the red carpet with Gary Johnson, and none of the celebrities there or any of the journalists had any idea who Gary Johnson was. Oh my and God. at the time this this was uh, recorded, he was at about nine percent in the polls. But everybody there thought he was uh, a reality TV star.
2: <laughs> That's amazing.
0: And it was real. It's really excruciating to watch. But it it prompted me to take a look back at notable third party and independent presidential candidates from the past hundred years. And when I look back, uh, I was really struck by the impact that these candidates have had on, on uh, American political culture, uh, in spite of the fact that we think of this as a rock-solid two-party system and the fact that American, the American public tends to treat candidates from third parties as a, as a joke or an, or, or an annoyance. Um, and so I thought about the more obvious... Impact that they have on the electoral math. And that's one way in which they've made, they've had a big effect in their ability to be spoilers, taking away votes from the major party candidates and bring about some unexpected outcomes. So, you know, we can think of a couple of examples right off the bat uh, Al Gore uh, losing be, probably because Ralph Nader got 97,000 votes. What was it? 97,000 in Florida in the 2000 election? Mm -hmm. Uh, and then in, to go even farther back, Teddy Roosevelt uh, in his Bull Moose Party run in 1912, Mm -hmm. which split the Republican vote and helped elect Woodrow Wilson. So they have an impact in that way, but I think the most interesting uh, impact that they've had is really in the recurring uh, themes and uh, the similar attitudes and ideas that you, you hear in those uh, third-party candidates of the past 80 years popping up again and again. Uh, so I'd like to go back... Let's go back uh, to Eugene Debs for just a second. <laughs> <Yes>.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: Eugene Debs, who ran for um, president uh, four times. He was a uh, union leader and uh, a socialist and was in prison, I believe, at the time of the 19... Uh, the last time he was a candidate it was 1912... And when we think of him, we think about uh, populism, I think, above above all else, apart from the socialism. And then
2: I, let's I, fast I, forward. I think, of, I think of baldness, actually, too. You think of boldness or baldness? Bald, baldness. <laughs> he was a very bald gentleman, wasn't he? Let me look this up. I'm pretty sure he was. Do you think that's the reason why he didn't win? <laughs> yes. <that> baldness. Yeah. <laughs> in, 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 you like utopian socialist policies? No. Baldness? <laughs> yes. Well
1: I, I also think of people who use their middle initial when they're describing their full name. They say Eugene V Debs. It's always Eugene V. Debs when I when I when I read about it or hear about him. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> yeah, like John
2: F. Kennedy. Fuck John that. A John A. Miller. I'm just John like, A. Miller. Yeah, come <laughs> on. Uh,
0: but then if we move ahead from there, though, to 1948, the 1948 election, we have Strom Thurmond uh, <laughs> with the Dixiecrats, oh, uh, right. or the, uh, the what, what was it called at the time? It was called the uh, Southern. Uh, oh, yeah. States Rights Democratic. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and this, of course, was all about uh, segregation and a response to um, uh, the desegregation of of the army.
3: The Southern revolt against President Truman reaches its climax at Birmingham under the state's rights banner. More than 6,000 flock to the Rump Convention to select the presidential ticket. 13 Southern states are represented in the uproarous session which precedes the nomination of Governors Thurmond of South Carolina and Fielding Wright of Mississippi as party standard bearers. Governor Thurmond attacks the civil rights plank. It simply means that it's another effort on the part of this president to dominate the country by force and to put into effect these uncalled for and these damnable proposals he has recommended under the guise of so-called civil rights. And I tell you, the American people from one side or the other had had better wake up. And oppose such a your program, and if they don't, the next thing will be a totalitarian state in the United States.
0: And so here's where we start to see some of these uh, ideas and these uh, that, that I think uh, are converging right now in this recent uh, Trump candidacy.
2: Can, can, can I uh, interrupt a second? Yeah. John? You know I met uh, Strom Thurmond, right? Oh, yes. That That's is uh, a... something I was
0: going to ask you about. You met him as a oh, small, small child, right?
2: No, I met him as an <laughs> 18-year-old, actually. 17-year-old. Uh, he was year old.
1: only 115 back he then. He was <laughs>
2: ancient. He was goddamn so ancient. And uh, no, I met him at uh, when I was an intern at the Senate when I was 17. And I was an, one of the youngest interns there. But we had a uh, – there was a party with uh, – I was on the uh, small business committee uh, as an intern under uh, Larry Pressler from South Dakota. And there was a party for the staff, and Alphonse D'Amato was there from New York, (laughs) who was also just goddamn hilarious, and Strom Thurmond, who I got to tell you, and when I was doing this, I was an extreme left-wing democrat when i was 17 yeah he was was one of the most charming people i've ever met in my whole life he was just adorable (laughs) and just so nice and just witty and everything and he i think at that point he was i would say 90 95 or something It 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 was like 1993 um he was he was damn old and he looked damn old so uh Yes he was a he was a, you know part of the uh, racist um, you know uh, uh, aristocracy of the south I also I and it, it's hard to you know have this as an in favor person I truly believed he did it just purely out of political experience so I, I truly believe he he was just a uh, Bill Clinton like uh, just pure political expediency kind of southern politician not a George Wallace, like I really hate black people, kind of like, southern politician.
0: I mean but Strom Thurmond, though. I mean he is his, you know, uh, becoming a Dixiecrat, you know, prefigured his jump over to the Republican Party in '64 when that split really, uh, where <laughs> Democrats lost the South, yeah, forever. Um, so he was, you know, that was that was the real uh, sign right there, um, that this was going to happen. Um, you know, that, that the South would be lost uh, to the Democrats. Um, but there's also, you know, in his candidacy, it isn't just the, the racial aspect of it, you know, uh, it, it's the tone. It's the fire and brimstone tone uh, of his, uh, just his overall um, presentation that is one of those things that in addition to the, the, the policies and the ideas is something that is probably the one constant in all of the, the third-party candidates that have uh, actually gotten a, a respectable share of the vote. So when we go ahead to uh, 1968, and we have George Wallace. I mean, George Wallace is uh, you know the, the absolute successor to Strom Thurmond. He's reacting to uh, uh, the, civil, the Civil Rights Bill. He's also reacting to the Vietnam War. He's reacting to the counterculture. Um, and, you know, you can find on, on YouTube videos of him taunting protesters. Hey! Shut up! you right, We've got
3: some professors in this part of the country who are today... They mean free speech only if you let them speak. They don't want anybody else to speak. And I tell you... When he was in California, a group of anarchists lay down in front of his automobile and threatened his personal safety. The president of the United States. Well, I want to tell you, if you elect me the president, and I go to California, or I come to Arkansas, and some of them lie down in front of my automobile. It'll be the last one they'll ever want to lie down in front of to anything that the people of your state and my state did or said in the past. They ignored us and looked down their nose at us and called us everything under the sun. And I'm sick and tired of it, and I resent it because I feel that the people of our region are just as intelligent and refined and cultured as the people of any region of the United States or the entire world.
0: We have a third-party candidate, when you listen to them, is describing just kind of a hellish landscape and a very, very bleak, very alarmist Worldview. And
3: it's a sad day in our country that you cannot walk even in your neighborhoods at night or even in the daytime because both national parties in the last number of years have kowtowed to every group of anarchists that have roamed the streets of San Francisco and Los Angeles and throughout the country. And now they've created themselves a Frankenstein monster and the chickens are coming home to roost all over this country.
0: And what I think I didn't know until a couple of days ago was his running mate was Curtis LeMay. The, Interesting. Uh,
1: I didn't know that either. Yeah,
0: the, uh, <clears throat> the, 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 the man who orchestrated the fire bombings of Japan. Yeah. Huh. He was mortified by the things that George Wallace would say, the racist stuff that George Wallace would say. So, you know, where have we seen that recently? <laughs> where... A vice presidential candidate is put in a difficult position by his uh, by his running mate. Um, so, fast forward from 1968. Oh, one other thing about 1968 uh, and George Wallace's candidacy. Uh, you know that phrase "law and order" um, it was on on his bumper stickers or his uh, his um, lapel buttons for that campaign. A phrase that you know pops up again and again in, in, in presidential campaigns. Then we move ahead to uh my favorite. <laughs> H. Ross Perot. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm all ears. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all ears. Now um Ross Perot is somebody who, you know, I thought I remembered very well. Um because, you know, I was I was paying attention to what was going on in that in that race in nineteen ninety-two. Um but, what I, but in, in looking back and researching that campaign, there was so much that I had forgotten. And I think what I remembered more than anything else were the uh, Dana Carvey impressions, <laughs> which was still my favorite Dana Carvey impression of all time. And just as good, uh, if not better, is Phil Hartman's uh, Stockdale. <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: <laughs> Government's in, in gridlock! LAUGHTER well there you go. Now that was vintage. That was one of the finest moments in any debate I've ever seen. I mean, talk about pinning the tail on the donkey. That's just what you did. I mean, you were A1 in that debate. You had an H-bomb. Them other fellas had a slingshot. When you were quiet there for an hour, that was world class. showed you ain't just talk. You know, quiet man. A lot going on upstairs. Them others just went shooting their mouths
0: off. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs>
3: Well, you're the admiral, and you're taking a (laughs) joyride.
0: People have been talking quite a lot over the past uh, few months about similarities between Donald Trump's campaign and and George Wallace's, but what I don't think gets talked about enough is uh, Ross Perot's campaign and how the Trump campaign in many ways is like the Perot campaign on steroids.
1: Mm.
2: (laughs) Yes, I'd like to direct my question to Mr. Perot. Uh, what will you do as president to open foreign markets to fair competition from American business and to stop unfair competition here at home from foreign countries so that we can bring jobs back to the United States?
3: Now if you just want to get down to brass tax, First thing you ought to do is get all these folks. who have got these one-way trade agreements that we've negotiated over the years and Say fellas. We'll take the same deal. We gave you to those of you in the audience who are business people pretty simple you're paying 12, 13 dollars, 14 dollars an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25 Let's assume you've been in business for a long time. you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care. That's the most expensive single element making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. And I said, why won't everybody go south? They said, we'll be disruptive. I said, for how long? I finally got them up for 12 to 15 years. And I said, well, how does it stop being disruptive? And that is when their jobs come up from a dollar an hour to $6 an hour, and ours go down to $6 an hour, then it's leveled again. But in the meantime, you've wrecked the country with these kinds of deals. Let's
0: let's just look at the facts here. We have a self-financed, folksy-talking high-tech industrialist from Texas. Uh, He won 18.9% of the vote. He took votes from both the left and the right, so it's kind of hard to, to really d- determine who he who he hurt more, Bush or Clinton.
2: I I think I think Bush, I, w- except I'll that he did take.
0: It. But you know, there are people who who think that he uh, he took a lot of um, uh, conservative Democrats and then kind of wrested them away from that party for the you know, rest of their lives. He finished second in Maine and Utah, even though he didn't win any. Um, uh, electoral votes in 1912, that, which was the most successful third-party uh, candidacy of, of uh, the 20th century. And then when we look at his, the themes of his campaign, mm. protectionist, extremely anti-NAFTA. You may remember the... Uh, Larry the, King. The primetime Larry King debate, where uh, that's also extraordinary can, to watch, Yeah, by can, the way.
2: Can you imagine that? A Larry King debate?
0: And Al Gore, I mean, it's 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 the Al Gore of, of the uh, the Saturday Night Live caricatures, right there. Yeah, um, he's pulling out uh, he's pulling out charts. He's uh, you know being very professorial, and I think right there is where we saw the you know that Al Gore caricature, which kind of dogged him. For the rest for, has dogged him for the rest of his life. But it's
1: hard to believe that any policy debate would be on prime time. You know, it's hard. It's it's very hard to. Believe. Well, that
0: was you know, and, and this is where you, This is where there's something else that will sound very familiar to you right now. Ross Perot wanted as much uh, TV time as he possibly could because he was very reticent to spend money on advertising. Uh, he hired. Uh, it was a big coup for him. He hired the guy who came up with the "Morning in America" commercial for Reagan. And then, uh, when this guy started to explain to him uh, how much uh, <laughs> ad spots cost, Perot was incensed, and he said, "You know, why would I spend money on uh, on 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 ads when I can get free exposure on today's Show?" <laughs> so, once again, this very Trumpian. Uh, and he was also um, uh, somewhat isolationist. He opposed the 1991 uh, Gulf War.
3: Let's go back in terms of accepting responsibility for your actions. If you create Saddam Hussein over a 10-year period using billions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money, step up to the plate and say, it was a mistake. We told him that we wouldn't get involved with this border dispute, and we'd never reveal those papers that were given to Ambassador Glassby on July the 25th. I suggest, in the sense of taking responsibility for your actions, we lay those papers on the table. They're not the secrets to the nuclear bomb. Secondly, when he, we got upset when he took the whole thing. But to the ordinary American out there who doesn't know where the oil fields are in Kuwait, they're near the border. We told him he could take the northern part of Kuwait. And when he I took know. the whole thing, we went nuts I've for Ambassador I got on that. Right. Just, that gets to the national honor. We did not say to Saddam Hussein Ross you can take the northern part of Kuwait. Well, that is absolutely absurd. Glassby has testified, and Glassby's papers have been presented to the <laughs> United States Senate. Okay. Now, please, oh, If you have it, time, please. if you have time, go through Nexus and Lexus, pull all the old news articles, look at what Ambassador Glassby said all through the fall and what have you. And then
0: look now, all of these things that I've kind of described about these candidates, um, you know, I guess you could call it nativism kindly, <laughs> or maybe more accurately, just outright racism on the part of Strom Thurmond and, uh, uh, and George Wallace, but white identity politics, combined with uh, protectionism, combined with isolationism with Perot, and they all seem to converge in our current Republican uh, candidate. Hmm.
3: Um,
0: And then the last thing, which I think is probably the the strongest legacy of these third-party candidates, is that fire-and-brimstone, alarmist attitude. They all have it, almost all of them. Uh, uh, Perot, Nader, Wallace, Strom Thurmond. For all of them, the world is coming apart. (laughs) And if you listen to... uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, acceptance speech at at the convention. um, It it is a it is a fairly bleak worldview, you know, where you know the world is coming apart, everything is bad, and uh, it's enough to make you think that. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say this: that Donald Trump is essentially a third party candidate who somehow (laughs) got a major party nomination.
1: You know, John, um, I would agree thematically with with the overtones of Trump. Uh, But one... I think the the counter to that, or at least what gives him the ballast to remain um, a mainstay party candidate, is that there's a lot of dialectic to Trump. There's the nativism... There, there's, there's the isolationism, and yet there's the uh, expansion of, of the Navy. There's the uh, tariff Trump and the build a wall with Mexico Trump, and then there's the negotiate individual treaties with individual countries. And I think the thing that, that's given him his buoyancy and success is that he, he has successfully co-opted Uh, the right and the Republican Party agenda enough to convince the main stay of the Hmm. party, the Republican base, that while he can be a populist and garnering support, he has um, not the policy chops, but at least the language of... Of a pence in certain, in a certain respect, with respect to the Supreme Court, with respect mm-hmm. to uh, f- foreign policy, there there are echoes of populism, but he's somehow successfully uh, tied that to the base of the Republican platform in a way that uh, n- you know no third, no pure third-party candidate would even want to and i think you're 100% correct in his heart and mind i think he is uh an independent and a third party candidate by virtue of the fact that he was a, you know supposedly a democrat in what was it 2008 when he changed you know the other thing and and you bring that up that this is another good point and i don't know if this um underlies every single one of the people that you mentioned but with respect to, let's say, Eugene Debs and the 19th century and the, the uh, shift in the economy from an agrarian to a manufacturing economy prompted a lot of people in the orthodox, in the orthodox economic setting to mm-hmm. be fearful of, of the change in technology and the shift in the economy and, and the fear of losing one's job. Mm-hmm. and um we see that mm-hmm. landscape today in the shift uh continuous shift from from you know the 70s forward to from a manufacturing to service economy and the effect of globalization on uh the american worker the m- miner um the manufacturer the automotive plant worker these these are when 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 globalization takes hold there's the winners and the losers and the losers are those whose jobs are never coming back as McCain famously said and those people over the last several elections have been utterly disenfranchised and we're looking at a large part of the population who are middle-aged a lot of middle-aged men who don't have jobs, can't get the jobs that, that bring the economic sustenance that they once had. And that's forming the base, a lot of the base support for Trump. And I think that's present in the popularity of a lot of third party candidates, such as Debs in the 19th century.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's remember Perot's uh, paranoia about uh, Republican operatives and he, uh, you know, famously claimed that Republican operatives attempted to disrupt his daughter's wedding. <laughs>
1: Do you remember yeah, that? I remember that? Oh was, God! Yeah. That was
0: around the time that he um, he dropped out of the race for a bit. In uh, right when he was kind of at his his uh, peak in the in the uh, the polls. Um, in June of 1992, he was actually ahead in the in the opinion polls uh, above uh, above Bush and Clinton. And then he, kind of had this freakout where he was claiming that Republican operatives were out to get him. He started implementing loyalty oaths. You know that so that sounds very familiar these days. Yeah, you know? I mean
2: if he if he is if he could have learned from Trump, the uh, answer was to do that earlier and more yeah. frequently. <laughs> By the way, think about Ross Perot. You probably watched that, um, or maybe you haven't. That special on him um, getting his. Employees out of Iran during the uh, Iranian uh, they, oil they, crisis.
0: They wrote a book about it, or pretty, they, or it was a TV pretty movie? badass
2: actually. Um, so he was kind of a joke on the campaign trail with for good reason, but uh, yeah, I mean that was that was pretty cool. So
0: one more thing about I want to say about Ross Perot is his brilliant idea to install electronic town halls. Do you guys remember this idea of his? <laughs> Vaguely. Uh, so basically, there would be these booths where uh, people would go in and <laughs> they'd press buttons on the, to, to uh, indicate where they, you know, how they felt about different things. That's awesome! And you know, it sounds like something a nine-year-old would dream up about how <laughs> really to run a country. It really does. But <laughs> the push-button world of the future—you just run the country by uh, the general population, just. Do away with representative democracy. <laughs> Completely button-driven
1: <laughs> policy. Something you'd see in Scholastic News.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, Some. <sometimes. laughs> highlights. Oh, God. It takes three legs to make a tripod or to make a table stand. It takes three wheels to make a vehicle called a tricycle. Every triangle has three corners. Every triangle has three sides. No more, no less. You don't have to guess when it's three, you can see it's a magic number. A man and a woman
0: so in the past few weeks, we've had a couple of October surprises that have really made this campaign uh, extra tense. Uh, Tim, you've been doing some research into October surprises of the past.
1: Yes, yes, I What'd have. What'd you find? And uh, in fact, many of the October surprises of the past remind us of the the dust of, uh, uh, that's left behind pig pen that we're <laughs> living in right now. Um, so uh, a, a brief history of the October surprise. Uh, the first October surprise was actually uh, in the election of 1800, a very famous election, and, and frankly, a complicated election, which we will delve into in another podcast. Stay tuned. But... <laughs> Uh, I will just streamline this to say that the election of 1800, as you recall, was between Jefferson and Adams. Now, Hamilton had some problems with Adams. He felt that Adams did not take a strong enough line, for example, with the Alien and Sedition Acts, uh, which were targeted at Democrat Democratic-Republican uh, Democratic, uh, newspapers. Um, at censorship and censoring those voices of opposition to central party, uh, the the, the strong central government platform of the Federalist Party. So uh, Hamilton envisioned uh, putting Charles Pinckney of South Carolina on the ticket with Adams uh, one of the things that that he did to ingratiate himself with South Carolina, which is where Pinckney was from, was to issue a, a letter to the Federalists of South Carolina in which uh, he excoriated Adams, uh, presumably to the benefit of Pinckney, uh, and he said things like, Few go so far in their objections as I do, not denying to Mr. Adams patriotism and integrity, and even talents of a certain kind. I should be deficient in candor were I to conceal the conviction that he does possess the talents adapted to the administration of government, and that there are great intrinsic defects to his character, which <laughs> unfit him for office of chief for the office of chief magistrate, thereby uh, necessitating. Pinkney to join the ticket. Uh, what he didn't realize was uh, Aaron Burr, uh, his famous enemy who would meet him uh, in New Jersey some years later uh, with pistols at dawn, uh, leaked that letter in mid October. Uh, back then in 1800, the election lasted an entire year from October uh, 31st to December 3rd. And by leaking that letter, he diminished the reputation of Hamilton, uh, he diminished the reputation of Adams, and so uh, Adams lost to Jefferson, uh, and that October surprise was instrumental in, um, in, in turning that election, and turning the electors, uh, two of each state, to vote in the majority for, Ham- uh, for Burr and Jefferson. In terms of October surprise, that is the first noted October surprise in American history, and it was a very effective one. So, that- so oh,
0: sorry, Tim, to ask a quick question here. Sure. Uh, so,
1: it swayed the uh, the votes of the electors mm-hmm. rather than the general electorate. That's that's correct. In eighteen hundred, the way votes were, uh, the way the American presidential was conducted, presidential election was conducted, uh, each state had two electors and they they could uh, vote uh, for the president. And the way it worked was, and this was a flaw in the process, among others, um, whoever received the second most votes became vice president. Uh, in this case, in 1800, both Burr and uh, Jefferson received 73 Votes, which took uh, that election to the House of Representatives where there was more turmoil and um, uh, Jefferson was elected president and and Burr vice president. That led to the 12th Amendment where uh, the electors had to discreetly identify who they were uh, selecting as VP and who they were selecting as president, and that never happened again. But uh, that is how that election took place back in 1800. It was not a popular uh, election, or should I say a popular vote that uh, gave rise to the Electoral College as we do today. Very different. So that leads me to some of my favorite October surprises. And and they're some of my favorites because, as John uh, found overtones and, and very material similarities between uh, Trump and the third party candidates of the past, many of the October surprises of the past also bear the resemblance of some of the themes that we hear today. And I picked some of my favorite ones. So the election of 1840, which involved Van Buren as a Democrat and William (laughs) Henry Harrison as a Whig, uh, in this election, Van Buren thought he had a really strong card to play uh, to secure a second term in office. He believed that he could release uh, a or leak uh, a federal prosecution that would turn the tide of the ticket. And in, in, in the election of 1840, prosecutors had planned to charge Whig politicians in New York of a fraud in which they paid Voters from Pennsylvania to travel to New York and fraudulently vote multiple times in the state's 1838 elections. Uh, Van Buren felt that uh, that would be very helpful in the election uh, of 1840. And so it was released in mid-October to maximize the effect and to maximize the uh, potential indictments and, and the actual indictments on, on the election. And, uh, in fact, the funny punchline of this is that most people just assumed that there was fraud, that politicians were fraudulent. So it impacted the election. Not at all. Uh, No one cared. And Van Buren lost by uh, six points. Um, So that sort of goes to the jaded nature of of the electorate. And it also goes to... uh, the old strategy of using government uh, government prosecution and enforcement um, or the threat of it uh, in an impending election to, to turn the tide. Um, and it didn't work in that case. So that is the Van Buren and voter fraud. That leads us to the election of 1880, which involved James Garfield, and Winfield Scott Hancock. Garfield was a Republican. Uh, Hancock, and also like lasagna. Hancock, a Democrat. And the uh, interesting aspect of this October surprise uh, is that this involves an immigration issue. Uh, on October twentieth, <clears throat> excuse me, eighteen eighty, a magazine called New York Truth published a three sentence letter. Purportedly written by James Garfield, uh, in which he voiced support for Chinese immigration, saying something to the effect of, "You should be allowed to have access to the cheapest form of immigration, and in this case, it was the Chinese." That being uh, insulting enough in and of itself, it was considered pro-Chinese immigration. <laughs> it's uh, like um, that. <laughs> and and it's like, it's like the most racist like <laughs> pro immigration thing like, and, and in, fact, in fact um while it did not turn the election against Garfield it had a very material fact uh, a very material impact on the vote turnout uh and the votes that he received it's one of the closest elections in in American history there was a lot of xenophobia in the country about Americans losing their jobs to immigrants, which is a theme we hear today. Um, and Garfield narrowly beat his opponent by 0.02 percentage points in the popular vote. And he lost California in that election, which was a, a center of Asian immigration at the time. So a very interesting um October surprise that resonates with some themes of the election today. And then finally, my favorite, the election of 1884, which involves Grover Cleveland, the Democrat, versus uh, James G. Blaine, the Republican, which gave rise to my favorite uh, alliterative political slur... (laughs) Rum, Romanism, and Rebellion, Uh, in 1884, James G. Blaine, uh, who was from Maine, attended a GOP meeting uh, in October uh, when a Presbyterian minister by the name of Samuel Bouchard accused Democrats of representing Rum, Romanism, and Rebellion, which stood for Alcohol, Catholics, and the Confederacy. (laughs) <laughs> uh, of course, Blaine did not make those remarks, but the fact that he didn't object by virtue of his silence, it was deemed huh. acceptance, and he was very much smeared by that remark uh, and the fact that he, that, that, that he did not respond to it in the negative, and as a result of the public furor over that... Um, Anti-prohibitionists, Roman Catholic immigrants, and Southerners as a bloc did not vote for him. Uh, He he did not receive the Irish vote in New York, uh, and he lost that election. Of course, uh, we hear the theme, the anti-Catholic theme, (laughs) uh, coming out of uh, the WikiLeaks dump, Uh, true or not. It is something uh, that has potentially impacted that voting block or disenfranchised it enough that we'll see if it has an impact or not. But those are three October surprises that resonate with uh, a lot of what we see today.
0: I think that uh, we need to start selling t-shirts on uh, barstoolhistorian.com with the words rum, Romanism, and rebellion.
1: (laughs) I love it. It's my favorite.
2: (laughs) And I thought you were going to say, Mama, where's my pa? (laughs) Gone to the White House. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Here at the Barstool Historians, we disagree on a lot of things, like when the Spanish are going to get back in the pantry and retake their former colonies and the Spanish-American War II will happen. (laughs) I mean, that, that ranges from five to 20 years. But there is one thing we do agree on, that the patron saint of this podcast is one Lord Timothy Dexter the author of probably the bible of self-help and that is uh, a pickle for the knowing ones or plain truths in homespun dress <laughs> and he was such a prolific genius he didn't have time for things that you and i take for granted like punctuation or capitalization <laughs> this book was one of the most remarkable things I've ever read, and uh, let's go back, and I'd like to, you know, take you away from the modern problems of, you know, Trump versus Clinton into the idyllic world of Lord Timothy Dexter. Uh, he was actually born just Timothy Dexter, and he was born in Massachusetts in the 1740s as a lowly leather worker's apprentice. But this was a man of ambition. And as men of ambition do, he married a wealthy widow of <laughs> another leather worker. And he decided, you know, this upper middle class leather working, working with a lot of urine, it is not for me. So I'm going to make my way in the world. And I'm there's nothing stopping me, Timothy Dexter, from moving up. So he decided to get into politics, and by getting into politics, he repeatedly uh, petitioned the local government for a political position, not understanding patronage or elections or whatnot. And uh, he did this again and again until the uh, body of Malden, Massachusetts, became very uh, annoyed and just bestowed on him the title of Informer of Deer. And under that title, he was required to keep track of the town's fawn population, um, even though the last deer had disappeared from the Malden Woods some 19 years before. So with this plum feather, unpaid feather in his cap, Timothy Dexter moved on to more greater things. So... Uh, he was. Uh, it was the Revolutionary War, and uh, the uh, Continental Congress decided to uh, pay all their soldiers in Continental dollars. Let, let's say in 1776, they're paying these soldiers a dollar of Continental dollars could buy a dollar of goods, um, and they just kept on printing money and inflation. And I'm sure our wise listeners will understand. And you know, inflation and You know, know, within 10 years, it was $40 by by $1 of goods. And then it was $400 by $1 of goods. And the uh, big wigs in Massachusetts, uh, John Hancock uh, and some of his compatriots, who were neighbors, you know, on the good side of town from Timothy Dexter, decided to take one for the team and for the for the Republic, for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, started buying large quantities of these notes. And, and you can understand why. They wanted to make sure people sold confidence and, and stop that inflation. And if you see one of your rich neighbors buying a lot of these, well, then maybe you'd hold on to them instead of selling them at a fraction of the price. Uh, Timothy Dexter decided to just shoot the moon and he thought they were on to something. He didn't really understand what was happening. Uh, so he put all his life savings in, into buying as many continental dollars as he possibly could. And uh, in a running theme from this, uh, this story, he uh, came up, uh, you know, <laughs> lucky sevens. Uh, after uh, the Constitution, Alexander Hamilton decided to actually um, pay out on these continental dollars, I, I forget, I think it was like 25 cents per dollar, when uh, I think the going rate was, you know, 0.5 cents a dollar. So uh, Timothy Dexter was immediately made a uh, incredibly wealthy person. So he thought, since he was suddenly incredibly wealthy, that his neighbors would accept him. And, of course, they didn't. Um, So he moved, and uh, in his new town, he really he he moved to Newburyport, Massachusetts, and there he really came into his own. (laughs) Uh, He he went there, and he he decided to erect a a house worthy of him. And uh, what would you do if you erected a house (laughs) if it is uh, commissioned um, some thirty? lifelike wooden carved statues of great historical figures on, uh, on pillars around your lawn. Well, yeah, you're, you're like the rest of us. <laughs> of course we would have done that. And, uh, you know, of course he did that. So he spent $2,000 a piece in, I'm, I'm, yeah, like in 1790s money on these statues and uh, there they were figures from history. There was George Washington. There was uh, the Queen of France. There was uh, all sorts of uh, great stuff. Uh, my, my favorite story is the, uh, <laughs> the artist was writing under uh, Thomas Jefferson, Declaration of Independence. And Timothy Dexter said, Constitution, and the artist explained, no, he actually wrote Declaration of Independence, whereupon Timothy Dexter got his long rifle <laughs> and shot at him, barely missing him, and then in a grave tone said, Constitution. <laughs> it was thus changed to Constitution <laughs> under Thomas Jefferson. So he is a manse, uh, and we'll put it on our website, and it's a it's a glorious manse, and you can... You can see it now, and, and not the statues, but uh, the, the house right now. Um, he decided he is really going to start living the life of a Boston Brahmin. So he tried to start, you know, mixing with the uh, upper establishment. The only problem is he uh, basically used his uh, estate as a... The quote is a bagneo, uh, so a brothel um, for long, long nights of drunken buffoonery in which women came and went, and the fine interiors, including curtains once owned by the Queen of France, were soon covered in, quote, unseem, unseemly stains offensive to sight and smell. So, <laughs> oh, He was not exactly God. a guy to uh, to engender the support of many of his neighbors. They understandably said this guy is uh, this guy is a f***ing loon and he doesn't know what to do with his money he has uh yeah the uh pro- he basically had like a rolls royce on cinder blocks out up in in front of his yard like this guy has too <laughs> much money and no sense so they decided to start giving him bad business advice, and this is where Timothy Dexter really came into his <laughs> the own. They uh, said <laughs> that he should uh, he should sell warming pans, the the kind of warming pans you've seen if you've been to like a pioneer you know settlement kind of you know theme park to for warming the bend like long handles with like a a pan where you you hold hot coals in it, Uh, warming pans, and you put it, you know, in the bed to warm it to the West Indies. So he put all his money into that and took 42,000 of those pans down to the West Indies. And wouldn't you know it? They really needed some long ladles for uh, molasses production. So he <laughs> sold them all at a humongous markup. Uh, then another person told him, You should sell coal to Newcastle. <laughs> and my God, you know, that's a joke selling, it's like selling a refrigerator to Eskimos and uh, to Egypt. You know, Newcastle has a lot of coal. Well, but, you know. The credulous uh, Timothy Dexter did send shiploads. He, He bought a fleet of nine ships to send coal to Newcastle, and miraculously, Newcastle coal mines were under strike at the time that the ships arrived, so he was able to sell them at another huge markup. And then one of the weirdest and, uh, you know, earliest, you know, to the point he might actually have been a, a, you know, a genius, he decided to corner the market on whale bones. (laughs) And you're probably asking, whale bones, pretty creepy and awesome, but, you know, what are you going to do with them? Well, back in the day, they were kind of like the plastic of uh, the 18, early 1800s, uh, used them in corsets, used them in a lot of, you know, things that needed to be flexible but strong. And he bought 340 tons of them. And he was paid in uh, several barrels of silver. Uh, So good for him. So he just kept on getting richer and richer and richer. And his neighbors got more and more and more angry. So he decided that uh, you know, if if he is not gonna be accepted by these snobs around him, he is gonna have to get his own coterie of geniuses just like him. <laughs> so he decided to uh look for the best minds in the world and God knows he found them. One uh John P, who is was uh, I've read a man from a respectable family who, after being rejected as a schoolmaster, became an outcast and opened his own school. He was a man of quote, perpetual contradictions who stoically imparted scientific wisdom on his pupils, with no knowledge or training on the subject. Of course, uh, him and Timothy became uh, best friends, and he became his biggest motivator. But who was uh, who was Timothy Dexter, if not a great man? And who was the greatest man of the time? Obviously, that'd be the King of England. And what did the King of England have that Timothy Dexter did not have? Well, that was a poet laureate. So <laughs> it preoccupied him to find a poet laureate. But be not afeared, uh, ye podcast listeners, because he found his inspiration in a. 20-year-old who was in the market who was selling halibut out of a wheelbarrow. And <laughs> Timothy Dexter decided to crown him, with not with a, a crown of mistletoe, like the great Italian poets, but uh, a, a crown of parsley, because that's what he happened to have in his garden. <laughs> and then he forced him to recite fawning poems uh, about Timothy Dexter. And can I, can I read one of them? Absolutely. Please. All right. <laughs> Lord Dexter is a man of fame. Most celebrated is his name. Most precious far than gold that's pure. Lord Dexter, shine forevermore. His house, it shines more bright than Lebanon's most pleasant height. Never was one who stepped therein who wanted to come out again his house is filled with sweet perfumes rich furniture doth fill his rooms inside and out it is adored and on top an eagle forms. his house is white and trimmed with green for many miles it may be seen it shines as bright as any star the fame of it has spread afar Lord Dexter, though, whose name alone shines brighter than King George's throne, thy <laughs> name shall stand in books of fame, and princes shall his name proclaim. Lord Dexter hath a coach beside, in palms and splendor he doth ride. The horse clamp the silver bit, and throw the form around their feet. Thank you. Guys, No, enough, enough. Okay, come on. We have to get back to this. Anyway, so uh, he had his coterie of geniuses. He had his dope-ass house. He had his drunk son uh, puking on the curtains. The one thing he didn't have was immortality, and uh, he found it. And that's why we're here right now, because his self-help guide (laughs) was amazing and i I really you can find it free online i think it's public record now but a pickle from the knowing ones is uh just straight up badass insane and uh so let let, first of all he he uses no punctuation (laughs) he uses capital letters (laughs) like sprinkled randomly it is it is like it's like reading a foreign language it's spelled phonetically the, and my favorite parts about it. If you don't read any part of it, just read the headings of. The, yes. I mean the, the chapters because he relates his own adventures and, in a third person, and it's just it's beautifully done. Yeah. Like
0: uh, like like the one about <laughs> how he how he made his fortune and. Uh, yes. Well, can, can yeah, I what, can I read this this one header? Oh yes, go ahead. Lord Dexter relates how he came to fortune by speculations in warming pans, whale bones, Bibles, and government
2: securities. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs>
2: exactly. Uh, the, the other uh, headings are: Let me see. Lord Dexter informs the whole world of improvements made and contemplated about his palace, describes his tomb, etc. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is not. This is what he's writing in the, yeah. these headings. Lord Dexter depict, depicts the evil resulting of making two towns of one. It advises against office-seeking and college learning. Lord Dexter's dissertation on man. Lord Dexter against colleges and priests. Oh, yes. Lord Dexter's daughter, unfortunately, married a minister. Who <laughs> uh, again and again rails on. <laughs> But my favorite John is the uh, Lord Dexter's pugilism. Yes, contra with a lawyer, the peer suffers ignominious defeat again. This is him writing it about him getting the kicked out of the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> he basically writes about pissing off. <laughs> some, yeah, uh, not even a lawyer, a lawyer's son, until he just beat him bloody in the street.
1: Well, and also
0: <laughs> the, the, uh, Timothy Dexter is um, uh, writing to the printer. But he's addressing the printer in this, so <laughs> he's he's frequently saying, "I'll tell you, Mister Printer." <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, he has a note to Dexter's second edition. Uh, again, let's let's just say right now, he 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 printed these for free because Lord Timothy Dexter, and let's make this clear: he proclaimed himself Lord, and more than that, he he nominated himself as Emperor of. United States, uh, United Kingdom, and France, and most of Europe, he took these books and gave them out for free. And he got a little feedback about where's all the punctuation. So in his second edition, he uh, says, note to Dexter's second edition, further, Miss Printer, the knowing ones complain of my book. The first edition had no stops. I put in enough here, and they made pepper and salt as they please. And then he wrote about, ooh, I would say, hmm, 160 commas and uh, 80 periods and a bunch of exclamation points. So, yeah, and a bunch of question marks at the back of his book. Lord Timothy Dexter was bat insane, and he was fantastic uh, unfortunately for him, he was also a, he was a pretty bad guy, too. And let me talk about Lord Dexter's uh, domestic affairs. So uh, remember, he married into a, uh, you know, a, a widow who had, was a uh, wife of a you know, moderately successful leather worker. And uh, apparently she was not on board with him going straight up insane. So she uh, decided to move out of their uh, incredible manse, and it's uh, <laughs> it's carved statues of Thomas Jefferson, author of the Constitution. Uh, in uh, the pickle, he refers her to her constantly as a ghost <laughs> that haunts him constantly, <laughs> and uh, it, and rails on her, her, the ghost of his wife, who he is. Was married for thirty-five years, but she still haunts him uh, for not letting him join the Masons. So I love you know. Ed.
1: I love that title. Forbid by the ghost of his wife to become a Mason. Make a contract <laughs> with the ghost to quit his estate. <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> so.
2: Oh, God. So, yes, he complains, uh, uh, I think I have the, uh, the quote here. To save his life from the attacks of the ghost, offers to sell <laughs> house, lands, and equipage. <laughs> now to all honest men, to pity me that I have been in hell 35 years. In this world, with the ghost, a woman I married and have had two children <laughs> now living. Abraham and Abraham Bishop married my daughter. I could not have the ghost in my palace sleep not to be had now to save my life I will sell if not I will let the house it is as noted as any house in the Isle of Shows and further in the world or since Noah's Ark and since the flood taking in myself finally such a place nowhere in the world all goes with it houses carriages all but Silver, plate, and jewels, and reserve the Holy Bible, and one buck more. My old head has worn out three bodies. It would take a jury of doctors one hour to find and count the scars on my head given by the ghost and others. Amen. Clean truth. Clean truth. That's the best part. Drops (laughs) Mike. I I have to give uh, shout-outs to to a lot of this uh, research. Obviously, his book is legend but uh the website com has an incredible um
1: recap of his life. Hey, uh I just want to tip my hat to Ed and when, when we uh hopefully post some of these um excerpts on the website, the fluidity with which uh, you read some of these passages is uh is something to be lauded because the spelling of uh, uh, and and, and the serial killer-like manner in which he writes is <laughs> so <hard>, just <laughs> incredible.
0: I propose this: um, Why don't we all take a stab at a um, at a passage and see who does it the best? <laughs> oh no!
1: Do you have it in front of you, Tim? Yeah. What do you want to do?
0: All right. Give me, give me, uh, give me a couple of lines.
1: Okay. Attack I'll take a ghost. stab at uh, the forbidden forbid by the ghost of his wife to become a mason to mankind at large I never had the honor to belong to that honorable masonic order I knocked once twice three times and a ghost appeared said thou shalt not enter because I have too much knowledge in my head I suppose <laughs> had I been one then should been to keep Open doors for thieves and robbers. I have... (laughs) I have rogues plenty without keeping tavern. I don't want no... Abrams, nor any of the order. Only fit ladies married and great gentlemen that belongs out of the town. Married people (laughs) and fine widows I wish to see. With pleasure, for I wants to marry a fine widow. For I hunt <laughs> had no wife for thirteen years. Next August, I have the ghost four hundred weight of silver to quit the state. Great lawyer Passons, the giant of the law, wrote the contract. The cause of it was that Miss Dexter, that was, would have my daft would have my daughter married to a bishop. called the agreement. The sole cause, she has two trustees, which have the money to deal out of the interest, and she is so generous, she buys her needles, (laughs) I buys the pins, and ciphers, and all things else, she leaves the interest in the hands of the trustees, I must have a companion for good by all, at present with glory." (laughs)
2: <laughs>
0: awesome uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this one um, now I have, a different, I have a different take on uh, Lord Timothy Dexter in my mind he sounds like Quint from Jaws <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah no it'd it be so this yeah. is
0: um, uh, Lord Dexter relates how he came to fortune by speculations in warming pans whale bones, bibles, and government <laughs> securities go for it man please "'How did Dexter make his money,' he says, <laughs> "'buying whalebone for staying for ships engrossing three hundred or forty tons. bought all in Boston, Salem, and all in New York undercover. "'Openly,' I told them, for my ships. "'They all laughed. "'So I had my own price. "'I had four cunning men for runners. "'They found the horn, as I told them, to act the fool. "'I was all full of cash, "'and I had nine ton of silver on hand at the time.' All that time, the creeters, more or less, laughing, spread it very fast. Here's the rub: in fifty days, they smelt a rat. Found where it was gone to Newburyport. Speculators swarmed like hellhounds.
2: <laughs> oh, brilliant! Fantastic! Let's 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 all clap on that. <laughs> God, you're such a just such a loon. <laughs> Well, it's, ama- it's amazing what you can get away with if you're rich. <laughs> just so, too rich to actually just lock up. <laughs> Gee, what, what, what can you get away with, uh, Ed, if you're rich? <laughs> what do they let you do? <laughs> they, you, you can run for president, apparently.
0: <laughs> I gotta be me. I gotta be me. What else can
3: I be? I want to live, not merely survive.
0: I think we can wrap this up, guys, uh, by raising a glass to Victoria Woodhull, who brings together all of the things we've been discussing tonight Uh, third party presidential candidates, October surprises, and overachieving, overachieving eccentrics. So, Victoria Woodhull was a suffragette leader in the late 19th century, and she's probably best remembered as the first U.S. female presidential candidate, uh, and she was nominated by the Equal Rights Party in 1872. Her vice presidential nominee was none other than Frederick Douglass, even though he uh, apparently had no knowledge of being <laughs> being nominated, and... She had her own October surprise uh, when she was arrested a few days before the election because she and her sister had, uh, in their newspaper that they ran, published an article about uh, the virtues of free love. (laughs) And she was arrested for um, obscenity. Uh, But she was already remarkable uh, for two things. She was notable for two things. Uh, She made a fortune twice. The first time she made a fortune was uh, as a spiritualist magnetic healer. She was part of the spiritualist movement of the 1870s. She was uh, famous for her power with magnetic fields, and one of her clients was Cornelius Vanderbilt.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. All yes, right. So she made
0: her first fortune that way, uh, and then she lost it uh, and then made it another fortune as a... Uh, the first female stockbroker in the United States, along with her sister. Uh, so, I'd like to raise a glass to, uh, to old Vicky. <laughs> and I think it's appropriate that we remember her uh, now, because in a few days we may have our very first female president. And it all starts with this crazy lady who could uh, heal people with magnetic fields. <laughs> 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 well, to Vicky, Cheers here's to you,
1: Vic. <sighs>
0: well, that about wraps up another episode of The Barstool Historian. You can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and on barstoolhistorian.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at TheBSHistorian and also subscribe to our Facebook page. That's it for tonight. From all of us here at The Barstool Historian, Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.